Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwell-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Okay, thank you so much for joining us today, everyone. You're listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, and I'm your host, Joni Kinwalmore. And today we have a, an old friend of mine joining us from many years back, Dune Lankard of, of the EAC Nation and from Cordova, Alaska. Welcome, Dune. Great to have you. Yes. Thank you, Joni. It's wonderful to see you. It's been a while. It's been way too long. And it's, I have to say, this has been one of the fun things about this podcast is it's a great excuse to get people I care about and love to talk to all together and to actually record it and share it with, with new listeners, which is fun because when I talk to people like you, Dune, every time, every time I am always kind of regretful that there's not a way we can share it with the world. So podcasting is pretty magical like that. So um, I am, you know, just kicking this series off. And so we're still just in our first 10 recordings. So thank you for being part of the first wave of uh, regenerative by design guests. This is very exciting. So, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating about you, Dune, and, and I've always really been curious about your background because it is unique and it is um, something that I think a lot of people are interested in hearing. And I'm luckily acquainted with your sister, Pam, who I did get to see a few years ago in Juno, which was lovely, and your niece. And you guys have a really interesting family history. And I'd love it if you could take a few minutes and just tell people about how you grew up and where you grew up and a little bit about your, your, your background. Sure. When uh, we grew up with um, a big family, there were seven little Indians and we were one of the last fishing, the last native fishing families in our region. And we took a lot of pride in that. Um, we worked hard. Uh, we would go out staining uh, towards the first part of June, and we wouldn't come back until school started in the fall. And so I remember once I turned five years old and I was tall enough to reach the hydraulic handle and run the power block, then it was time to go fishing. And uh, so I remember just growing up on the ocean and, and that being a part of my life. And I remember seeing the first modern day sailboat come into Prince William Sound, the first uh, modern day kayak. And I remembered that what I felt back then was that we were being discovered and that that was the beginning of the end because everything that we had believed in thought um, 
people were were going to come in and actually be on vacation while we were working. And and I always felt that fisher men and women were underappreciated uh, because we provide millions and millions and millions of meals a year, yet I always felt like we were expendable, like like people really didn't value a way of life like we did. Like we were proud to be one of the last Indian fishing families, you know, fighting against non-native fishermen. And uh, I just remember that my education was the Copper River Delta in Prince William Sound. And coming from my EAC, uh, background from my mother's side, you know, we're matriarchal. So you are who your grandmother is. And so we all knew we were EAC. We knew that uh, our way of life was tied uh, to that people and to our ancestral homeland. And so a couple things happened that really impacted our way of life in Prince William Sound. The first thing was the natural disaster on Good Friday, uh, March 27th, 1964, when the uh, earthquake happened in Prince William Sound. And it basically uh, turned our fishery upside down in our way of life. Uh, people died in Prince William Sound, the, the tidal wave. Uh, our fisheries uh, took years to recover. And I remember when that uh, that Good Friday earthquake happened, uh, I was five years old. <clears throat> and then 25 years later to the date of that earthquake, we had the Good Friday, March 24th, uh, 1989, Exxon Valdez oil spill that happened on the 25th anniversary. And... So again, our fisheries were turned upside down and our way of life was impacted. And, and I learned about resilience, you know, and just how resilient communities can be and need to be because natural and man-made disasters were going to continue to happen. So here we are, 25 years, actually 33 from the Exxon Valdez. And now we have climate change. The difference between the first two catastrophes and this one, I really don't know if we're going to recover from this one. So what I grew up with was something that my daughter, Ananda, who's 11, may never see in her lifetime. She won't see that level of bounty. Uh, but that was the thing that always inspired me and gave me hope was the bounty and the endless beauty of this amazing place and the resilience of not only the people, but the ocean and how it could, if left alone, could take care of itself. But us humans seem to think that we're going to live forever and the planet's going to live forever. And so a lot of things that I, um, took for granted in my lifetime, we certainly cannot take for granted in this lifetime now. And because we, we have to 
you know, make sacrifices and figure out how we're going to help restore our environment to the best of our abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, it is an interesting perspective to think of someone who's been raised so closely tied with the ocean. I, I mean, there's many, many people around the world who live at the ocean and there are many people who make their living from the ocean, but it's interesting from the perspective of someone who's grown up making a living from the ocean and seeing some pretty significant disasters hit and what that resiliency and that recovery looked like. And now that we're facing like a more large level systems change, it's not like a one day event that has a cleanup period. It's something that's much more massive and trying to wrap our heads around how we can work towards regenerating our oceans and if that's possible, what we need to do and what that looks like. So, you know, if you could tell us a little bit more about your background in, you know, advocacy, both social and environmental um, because when I met you, you we um, I worked with the EAC Preservation Council for a winter with you and Carol. Learned a lot about nonprofits at that time and um, environmental impact nonprofits. And if and and you're now, um, I if you could tell us how that's transitioned, because I think people who have been following you are familiar with that EAC Preservation Council and now Native Conservancy and and a little bit of the story of how you where you are today with that. Sure. I have always felt blessed when on the sea, like even in rough weather. uh, I've felt like the ocean has always provided a way of life for me and my people and my family and taken care of us. And I feel like. what we're going through right now, because like if I go back 33 years to the Exxon Valdez oil spill, that was like climate change happening overnight. Right. Uh, it, our, our oceans died that day and there's still dead spots. Um, Prince William sound where there's no life. Uh, there's still places where there's, oil seepage, you can dig down three inches to three feet and there's still oil prevalent in Prince William Sound. You can uh, look at the herring fisheries and they're just now starting to finally make a comeback after 33 years and herring are cyclic fish. You know, they're 15 year cycle fish. So we went through two cycles of no herring and now we're in the third. So I'm hoping that they're going to make a recovery because when you think about um, what happened, we had 200,000 ton of herring returning annually to Prince William Sound that dipped as low as only 4,000 tons. But if the herring recover, then all of the 27 most heavily impacted species will recover. Herring was, that fishery alone was half our annual fishing income. So the people would recover, our economy would recover. And so it's my hope that someday with what we're doing with kelp farming, that we can help the herring recovery as well as provide habitat for salmon. And for when I go back 
to when the spill happened and I started the EAC Preservation Council, I had realized that all the powers that be, all the leaders had lost their wisdom and lost their way and that they had decided to destroy everything in order to survive. And so they were going to clear cut a million acres in the parallel path of the Exxon Valdez. They were going to develop all of these places. There was 37 major environmental battles that we had to take on. And thank God we won 35 of those. You know, we were able to take on the powers that be and, and try and set things in motion so there was actually a process of law and not just a body of law that impacted us, but that they would have to, uh, you know, as long as we were proactive, then they would have to react to us rather than uh, us just sitting back and waiting for them to do, do the next bad thing. And we filed numerous lawsuits. Uh, in defense of Mother Earth. Um, we did partnerships and collaborations with indigenous peoples, not only across Alaska, but across America. We wanted to protect the last of the wild places to the best of our ability because we always knew that as long as the habitat was preserved and the salmon had a home to come back to, that we would be okay. And what I realized after the oil spill was that the precursor to restoration of any kind, whether it's saving a language, saving a wild salmon run, saving the native peoples, protecting clean air, clean water, is that you first have to preserve what you still have. Preserve that, and then you can restore what's been destroyed. And I've always thought that the Copper River Delta and Prince William Sound, and in this case, specifically the Copper River Delta, was one of those world-class baselines that would have to remain intact if you were going to have any success, any level of true restoration of a wild salmon habitat. Because here's the thing. If you just develop 10% of the wild salmon spawning habitat those salmon could disappear for 100 years. But if you restore that spawning habitat, those salmon are smarter than us. They'll be back in three to five years doing the wild thing, reproducing. That DNA is, is inside of them. And so, you know, I've always felt that the wildlife knows more than we do, and they're going to survive if we just leave their habitat alone. And so after preserving over a million acres of land in our work with the EAC Preservation Council and the Native Conservancy that I'd actually formed in 2003, and it was focused primarily on uh, preserving uh, the Bering River coal field on the Eastern Copper River Delta and doing uh, land habitat acquisitions or protections uh, in our region. But about 2017, we had four bad fishing years in a row. Uh, only uh, 44,000 sockeye salmon returned home uh, four years ago. Uh, the following year, the ocean heated up to 76 degrees for three weeks down to 20 feet below the surface. Wow. 20 feet below that at low water. 
So what happened was literally millions of krill, mussels, wild kelp forests, salmon and birds perished. And then the following year, only 85,000 sockeye salmon found their way home. The following year, we had 500,000 sockeyes. That's still only a quarter of what we would normally harvest on a given year. So we would average like a million to as many as two million sockeye salmon finding their way home. And for me, I've always had this relationship with our salmon goddess, Willitney. Willitney was the controller of salmon. And I talked to her all the time. Every time I went fishing, I was talking with Willitney. And especially during really bad storms. Like, you've mm-hmm. got to help me get home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then I, I realized that this was out of Willitney's control. You know, that what we were doing to the ocean, what we were doing to our habitat, what we were doing to our herring, what we were doing to our way of life, I didn't know if she could help us anymore. And that was uh, concerning for me. And so I sat down with my family and friends and I said, you know, we have to do more than protect habitat. We're going to have to figure out how we can preserve and enhance our subsistence way of life that's comparable to none. And at the same time, figure out how we're going to grow things both on the land and in the ocean if we're going to survive. Because a couple of things had happened for me in the last a few years right at around that same time was one of our board members of the Native Conservancy, Winona LaDuke, came to Alaska and gave this amazing talk on the value of food systems and how tribes and villages and people that she was working with, uh, coastal rural communities, needed to really figure out their food systems approach and how they were going to feed their people. And then I met this um, dear friend and cohort who's helping us now in some of our kelp work, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Hoover. And she had written this article entitled, How Can You Call Yourself Sovereign If You Can't Feed Yourself? And I thought to myself, doesn't that just say it all? I mean, isn't, you know, this what everybody needs to be thinking about? And so, My idea was to scale up by scaling down. And what I mean by that is, you know, the processors and the canneries, the seafood companies have owned us and it's always been about mass extraction and and massive processing and and sales and and about, uh, you know, uh, utilizing the resource to uh, you know, take it to the point of extinction. Yeah, to That's the brink, been to the the brink of collapse. Yeah. Exactly. And so what I wanted to do is uh, build community cold storage and community processing. So not only would people change their relationship with their food source, but they would also downsize. So they would take care of feeding their people and selling their excess on their own. So there could be more value adding. So there could be, you know, uh, a different way of, of living on the ocean and living on the land and changing your relationship with that food source. I felt that that was really important. 
And then right about that time, a dear friend of mine, Michael Bazantin, who had started the organic food program for Whole Foods USA, he said something really profound to me one day. He said, Dune, if it's not regenerative, then just don't do it. And I was like, you're absolutely right, Michael, because I, in this time of my life, that if the Native Conservancy was going to have any success with helping people not only protect their food, but grow their food, then it had to be about being based on resiliency, based on conservation, based on restoration, based on mitigation. And really, at the end of the day, about building resiliency for the future. And so uh, I started, you know, looking around and I had a, a dear friend uh, that was, I was a future fish fellow with and also uh, uh, an Ashoka fellow uh, with Bren Smith from Green Wave. And I'd remembered, you know, a couple of events that we went to all the suits wouldn't talk to us and we looked like fishermen. And so we'd hang out and visit. And, and I remember talking to him one day, I said, you know, Bren, what you're doing with kelp is actually that's the future. And I'm still living in the present and we're still making money. And I said, but if things crash in our industry, I'll be the first one to call you. And so when we had those four bad seasons in a row, I called him immediately and said, you know, I want to come back and see what you're thinking and tell me about how this could work because I've been, you know, studying kelp and mariculture for a while. But, you know, tell me how it can actually work for our people. And and so I went back there and, and I, to New Haven, Connecticut, and went to his farm and, and I realized that kelp can sequester carbon five to 20 times more than living terrestrial forests. And bivalves, uh, mariculture, uh, clams, scallops, oysters, um, uh, you know, different uh, bivalves could filter 40 to 60 gallons of water each per day. And so one oyster farm could clean the entire bay itself in an afternoon. And so he had this one site on his website called um, Who Farms Matters. Well, I took that literally because for me, um, I thought that the indigenous people should be the one who were farming on their ancestral lands in front of their villages. And in that, you know, industry and, and fishermen and different people would certainly, you know, get their permits, but it shouldn't be in front of our village site. Because here's the difference between um, uh, fishing and, and kelping. Fishing starts in May and ends in October. Kelp season starts in October and ends in May. Wow. So we would be out on the ocean in the roughest, darkest, stormiest, coldest parts of the year. So you don't want to have to go very far. And you're, you're going to have to have really good boats and, and, and good gear you know, mm -hmm. to stay 
safe and warm. And, and so I felt that this mariculture industry was actually a modern day land claim happening on our oceans, not only in Alaska, but America and around the world. And that the indigenous peoples needed to organize and, and demand reconciliation of fishing rights, demand new acts for mariculture and aquaculture, and figure out how the indigenous peoples were put in a position so they would be able to, to give the blessing to this new industry to roll right over them, or better yet, put them in a position where they had first right of refusal to get those permits in the water in front of their villages. And so mm-hmm. I would travel out into some of the different villages and I would say, even on Zoom calls, I'd say, okay, now let's do a little simulation here. You know, imagine you're sitting in front of your bay window, looking out over the bay and you're feeling really good about life and you're drinking your sovereign cup of coffee. And uh, all of a sudden a boat comes rolling in the bay and starts deploying anchors, lines, and buoys and building a kelp farm. And it's not you. Mm-hmm. And that permit is good for 10 years. And after 10, you can renew it for another 10. How does that make you feel? And everyone goes, oh, my God. You know, like, like how can this be? I said, well, it's the American way. It's the Alaskan law. It's the way it's set up. But you need to, you know, make a decision. You know, is this, this how it's going to be or or you know, are, are you going to organize your people and your tribe and your community and figure out how you're going to be a part of this new emerging fledgling industry mm-hmm. that is taking the world by storm? Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people don't realize is this, is even in this time of COVID, mariculture and specifically kelp has gone from $9 billion to $15.6 billion in sales around the world in the last two and a half years since COVID. Wow. It's growing at 11% a year. Everyone in their right mind should be concerned if they really care about this thing being handled sustainably, let alone uh, based on building for resiliency for the future, then there really has to be a plan, Mm -hmm. not only for Alaska, but for the world. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, when we look at the major events that change systems and frequently they're disruptive events, you know, like the Good Friday earthquake, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, pandemics, um, even this war, it, you know, everyone's qu- quickly adjusting their plan rather spontaneously where right now with resiliency, regenerative design, regenerative by design thinking, it's like we're given this opportunity right now to rethink so many systems that affect our survival every day with intention, not in this kind of rapid response to a disaster methodology and um, to make sure that they're set up for long-term resilience. And I think that this is a great example of an emerging industry that needs to be very, very intentional right now about how it sets up so that it serve, serves our planet and our people for many decades to come and many generations to come. And I think most people and many who are probably listening to this podcast right now are rather new to this concept. You know, it's really, a, a it's an emerging field and 
you know, those of us who lived in Alaska or grew up on the coast. And I mean, I remember harvesting fucus and all the different seaweeds and actually eating them and doing different things with them with Janice Schofield and many, you know, uh, coastal American herbalists and, you know, and traditional practices of harvesting. But, you know, I think the average person feels rather disconnected to how kelp and how seaweed can be food if it's not in the form of sushi. I think for most people, that's their only touch point. So I didn't really plan on us talking about this, but could you take a moment just to educate our listeners as to how they may come in contact with seaweed-derived foods? Sure. The, there was a report written by this wonderful Clinket elder, Dolly Garza, uh, about kelp. And she goes back and, and studies the different species of kelp in Alaska. And she goes back several thousand years in history and basically lists the different coastal tribes that had thousands of years of history uh, gathering kelp. And, and I also remember um, my sister Pamela had found this article from 1907, 1908. And it was about this reporter for the Cordova crimes. He basically saw these two native women skipping down the street and uh, a boat had just landed from the Bering River. And there was this war on over coal. And Cordovans were having their own Boston Tea Party throwing foreign coal overboard, demanding that uh, the Bering River coal fields be opened uh, for the coal fields. And the Guggenheims and the J.P. Morgans at the time, who owned all the uh, seafood companies and all the uh, commercial fish traps and the railroads and all the steamships, uh, they wanted to power their locomotives with the Bering River coal fields so they could go 150 miles up the Copper River to take the copper ore out of Kennecott mm -hmm. and then bring it back down to Cordova, which was the terminus of the um, uh, uh, copper ore going to market. And this whole battle ensued, and it was played out in the public eye for about 10, 12 years. And Cordovans and people in Catella, which was then a town back then of 5,000 people, imagine mm -hmm. that, three wow. times the size of Cordova, who had the first oil well in Alaska, they were burning effigies of Pinchot and, and uh, uh, President uh, Roosevelt demanding that they open this coal field. Well, in Cordova, this reporter sees these two women skipping down the street and it looked like they had a brick of coal underneath their arm. Mm. So he's like, oh, there's their coveted coal. I'm going to go chase the natives down because there's a story there. So he catches up to them and realizes that it's not a, a brick of coal. It's a kelp cake. It's a brick of kelp. Hmm. And the EAC used to take like um, a layer of uh, kelp, a layer of berries, a layer of kelp, and uh, hooligan oil which is just some of the yummiest butter on the planet. Uh, but the EACs were famous back then 
for rendering the fat out of the hooligan and bartering that. Because with that hooligan oil, you had fire, you had light, mm-hmm. you had cooking oil, you had butter, you know, so very valuable resource back then. Mm-hmm. And then that what the EX would do is compress that kelp cake. And it was probably America's first energy bar. Yeah. And so um, when you'd go on long hunting trips or boating trips or, you know, away from home, you'd want to take one of those kelp cakes with you because it has the omegas. It has 14 different vitamins. It has all these nutrients. It has iodine. It has 10 times more calcium than milk. You know, you take a bite of that. And you chew on that and you're going to have all of those nutrients that your body needs to be able to survive. And there was a native uh, saying that when the tide was out, your table was set. And so when the tide went out, the native people would gather, you know, the crustaceans, the seaweeds, the different Mm -hmm. uh, things that would basically end up on the dinner plate, right? So by 1924, the Americans started uh, what was called the White Act. In the White Act, Kamada turned our intertidal zone at low water into a commodity so they could sell what was in the intertidal zone. So they took away our table for, from the Native peoples. It was like knocking off the buffalo. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you could figure out how to take the easy access resource from the native people, then you could figure out how to kill them and displace them. And so the more I did research on kelp and the history of this amazing food source, I realized not only was there 150 to 200 different food products that you could make and additives uh, that you could make out of kelp, uh, like we took one of Pamela's salmon burgers and turned it into a kelp burger. And only wow. we changed out the fish with spotted shrimp and sugar kelp out of this world. Uh, you just, it pops in your mouth and the, the flavor, the uh, aroma, the, the taste of the ocean. Yeah, natural uh, umami, the, natural like yeah. satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Move, move over Impossible so, Burger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, we realized that you could also make pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, uh, cosmetics, um, biofuel, bioplastics. Mm-hmm. You could take animal feed and add 2% kelp to the animal feed and feed it to cows and pigs and reduce their emissions by 50%. Mm-hmm. which cows, 60% of the gases emitted in the world right now are from cows. So I realized that kelp was the hemp of the sea yeah. and that it had all of these amazing properties. And it just took our imagination to figure mm-hmm. out how we could turn it into usable byproducts that makes sense. And, and this is the same way that I feel about oil. Like if we were really smart and you know, and really cared, then we would be taking the last of our finite resources and figuring out how we could utilize it to the best of our abilities to keep it around the longest we possibly can rather than putting it into cars 
in traffic jams, in, in emitting, idling energy. I mean, how stupid are we? You know, as a human race, if we're going to survive, we actually have to be a little bit more creative mm-hmm. and a little bit more courageous in how we make decisions on the different resources that we utilize. And so I look at the opportunity with kelp not only being regenerative, but it's also a resource that is necessary for restoration of the ocean because the reality is ocean acidification, ocean warming, and ocean rise is happening across Alaska. The reason that it's happening in Alaska faster than any place around the world is because we were colder than most places. So the permafrost, the sea ice, the glaciers are all melting at unprecedented rate. And so, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that we have to think differently and act differently mm-hmm. and actually come up with strategies that we're going to uh, figure out how we're going to regenerate the ocean. And, and I remember a, a dear friend of mine from the Alaska Conservation Foundation, the executive director, Michael Barber, one day uh, in a conversation we were having, he looked at me and he said, you know, Dune, what you're doing with kelp is it, it, it's an opportunity to build a regenerative economy that's based on restoration, conservation, and mitigation, not further extraction of Alaska resources. Mm-hmm. He said, so I want to help you. Nice. And so we were able to convince the Exxon Valdez Oil Spill Trustee Council, who was doing their spend down of the last of the restoration funds, we convinced them to set aside money for development of mariculture to actually help the spill zone. And at the same time, it would be their first act of restoration in the ocean since their formation 30 some years ago. And so I felt like wow. before you leave town, yeah. you can do one act of restoration one last thing. for the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so we were able to get six and a half million dollars for five, um, six different groups who are actually trying to get kelp in the water Mm-hmm. and work with the 36 tribes that are showing an interest right now across the state that want to figure out how to get kelp and mariculture farms in the water. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, the Science Mafia was able to garnish upwards of about $27 million to study kelp for the next 10 years. And so I feel like, why not put the money in the hands of the communities that were impacted the most and help them take this $450 million in science that shows that oil and water don't mix and actually put that science to work mm-hmm. in the communities mm-hmm. to help us restore our way of life. Because at the end of the day, this is where we live. Yeah, This is where we survive. This is where we thrive. You know, this is where we're going to spend the next 10,000 years of our life. And so I feel that people around the world to be recognizing that the original guardians and the original stewards of the land and the sea should be back, put back in the place of stewardship. So we have an opportunity to do the right thing for the right reasons. The 36 tribes that are interested in, in growing kelp and mariculture in Alaska, 
want to get in for these three reasons in this order. Number one, for restorative purposes first. Number two, to grow a traditional food source that they've enjoyed for thousands of years. And number three, to build a regenerative economy that they can not only be proud of, but a part of. Like, come on. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, I mean, it's not, yeah. That's in powerful. where your average food farmer wants to get in to make money. So the people who want to get in, their, their values are different than ours. Their reasons are different than ours. Their motivation is different than ours. And so if, if the planet's going to have any chance at all, it's our youth rising. And I keep joking with them and telling them, listen, my exit strategy is you rising. So figure it out because things are changing at such a rapid rate. And, and, and I want to believe that we're smart enough and, and we're educated enough that we're going to take that collective wisdom and knowledge and actually put it to work mm-hmm. and, and change the way that things are done. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a theme that comes up time and time again and has come up in every podcast we've had so far about this reassignment of value and how, you know, it's essentially the study of axiology, which is how we apply value. And, you know, that's a fundamental core feature in how we implement regenerative systems for the future is reassigning where we place our value and what is most important. And everybody agrees that, yeah, we need things to be profitable because we need to make livings. We want to continue living our best lives where we are and things do have to have an element of being financially viable, but there's no reason why we can't have something that has value much greater than just being financially profitable, but can invest in future population generations. It can invest in the future of their, the ecological environment. It's like this bigger picture thinking that is so critical to us moving into the future. So I, I love that that just naturally came up and Dune, you've done a fantastic job really hitting on everything that I wanted to talk about, at least for today. I think we could have several segments. <laughs> we probably should have Dune part one, part two, and part three. But, you know, even for today, this is this has been incredible. And there are just so many things that I want to explore further. Um, you know, but but just in interest of time, because boy, it's it's amazing how fast the time goes. You know, you did talk about action and what your exit strategy is, you know, as far as like where you're putting your hope for the future. Can you spend a little time with us just talking about, you know, where your hope lies right now um, and just kind of go go on that for a minute for us? Sure. I just love you. And it's so wonderful to see you and reconnect with you. I've always been a fan of you. (laughs) It's um, mutual. From day one. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, I think there's there's a dozen or so bottlenecks to uh, this industry and barriers to entry that our Native Conservancy is trying to overcome. And so we're creating numerous pilot programs to help educate and inform people of what can work and what probably won't work uh, and what makes the most sense. Like, you know, in this industry, like to give you some idea, like if I decided to go chase another fish species somewhere else, I would buy a boat, I would get that permit, 
I would get a net and I would think like that fish and go catch it. But with kelp and mariculture, it's a whole different thing. Um, you have to figure out how to do a landscape analysis, how to do a site analysis so you know where to grow your farm, size your farm. You have to figure out where you're going to source your wild seed because you got to harvest it within 25 miles of your actual farm. So mm-hmm. you're going to have to learn how to dive for it. You're going to have wow. to figure out how you're going to cultivate it. You're going to figure out how you're going to deploy it, mm-hmm. how you're going to build your arrays, uh, how you're going to get this farm in the water. Then you're going to have to figure out how you're going to harvest it, how you're going to process it, how you're going to value at it, yeah. and then how are you going to get it to market in a remote from a remote place. Yeah, complex. And so, yeah, so and, and it costs millions of dollars. Uh, and I remember uh, when I first met Ram Das uh, on the Savas Foundation, I said, how do you do it, man? He said, it costs millions and millions of dollars to keep my life simple. Well, <laughs> I thought when I started out that I would get paid to watch kelp grow because kelp can grow 18 to 24 inches a day. Yeah. And it's, it's the fastest growing organism on the planet. So yeah. I thought, okay, I don't have to chase it around. I don't have to feed it. I don't have to give it fresh water. Yeah. And I just want to get paid to watch kelp grow. Well, in order to get there, you have to do all of these things. So what mm-hmm. we've decided to do is, is figure out how we can certify native divers, how we can teach them how to source their own seed, how they can build their own uh, kelp seed nurseries so they can grow the kelp themselves. We bought a boat company so we could teach them you know, how to use vessels, not only that are designed for kelp and mariculture, but that have a dozen different jobs during these climate changing times. Mm-hmm. We wanted to figure out how to um, create a, a native kelp cooperative so mm-hmm. uh, we can create coopetition so we can cooperatively compete to get as much uh, kelp in the water as possible. We wanted to figure out how to offset those overhead costs, how, how we can work on marketing and processing and, and getting the kelp to market. Then we figured we needed to start a Native Kelp Alliance, a 501c4, that could help address some of the laws and policies that aren't just quite right. Like, for example, if kelp can sequester carbon five to 20 times more than living in terrestrial forests, then let's figure out how to keep the kelp in the water longer, you know, or do carbon sinks. Yeah. You know, uh, how to do carbon insets instead of carbon offsets where mm-hmm. we're trading, you know, actually get paid to do sequestration. Right. Figure out how to, uh, uh, you know, do direct seeding so we can get away from anchors, lines, and buoys. How can we do programmatic permitting since it's for restorative purposes first, you know, rather than getting one permit at a time that's based on making money, but actually getting 10 at a time because you're doing it for restorative purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how can we figure out how to get CDQs for the surface of the ocean for indigenous people? Mm-hmm. And CDQs are community development quotas that the tribes own because they should have the first right of refusal and the opportunity to permit their lands based on their traditional and customary use for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if we already have CDQs for the bottom of the ocean, yeah. why not have it for the surface of the ocean? And the beauty of this is that at the time that this turns to limited entry, 
because only 30% of each bay can be filled with mariculture, then it's going to go to limited entry. And and in, if individuals own all the permits, then they're going to sell to demand. They're going to sell to industry. They're going to sell to, you know, people that aren't looking at sustainability and building for resiliency. Where if it's CDQs for mariculture, for the surface of the ocean, for the tribes, then the tribes own those mm-hmm. farming rights. And their individual tribal members can certainly go out and make money doing their farming. But at the end of the day, they won't lose that uh, sustainable economy. Mm-hmm. And they won't, you know, they'll always have access to a food source. And so I feel like, you know, we have this amazing opportunity, not only in Alaska, but around the world, because we're getting phone calls from tribes in Canada, Washington, yes. Oregon, California, New York, the Aleutians, yeah. uh, New Zealand, you know, Mexico. and. So we're starting a Kelp Now tour. And, awesome. and at first it started out, you know, happening in Alaska, but now people want us to expand and come to other places because the reality is, is that people need to learn about this industry and learn what is possible and how to do it sustainably and how to finance it. And here's the last thing I'd like to say, at least in this call, is we're creating an indigenous Ocean Farmer Loan Fund. <clears throat> and basically what it is, it's a low-interest, long-term deferred loan payment program for Indigenous people so they don't actually have to start paying the loan back until they're actually profitable in their mm, farm. That's great. And this will give them the opportunity to keep a farm rather than sell their farm to get a farm. Yeah. And so the idea is is that, uh, you know, we're working with Spruce Root, a CDFI in Southeast Alaska, to set up this fund so we can help indigenous people figure out how to get in. Because I can tell you this right now, your average Indian, your average native person walking into a bank isn't going to get going to get a uh, loan for a, a kelp farm mm-hmm. or a mariculture farm. Mm-hmm. And so we have to do that ourselves. And we've already got investors and we're working with foundations and social impact investors and angels and different people. But on our website that we're, currently overhauling we're going to have all of these different ways that people can support our work and learn about what we're doing and why we're doing it and and it's not you know the indians against the world what it is is it's about how do we help indigenous peoples permit their ancestral lands where they've lived Mm -hmm. for thousands and thousands of years Mm -hmm. so it's not rocket science and we're not trying to take jobs away from people what we're trying to do is figure out how to bring the women and youth back to our villages mm-hmm. and give them good paying blue green yeah. jobs yeah. that actually matter. And purpose. Um, I mean, that's one of those things that people often don't think about enough is that when you dedicate your life to a job that is meaningful and you can extract a living <laughs> from it, you can pay your bills and you can feed your children and you can have a, a good life. But you have purpose, like you're actually participating in something that is more meaningful than just you having your creature comforts. You're participating in a larger community um, endeavor. And and farming is is one of those cultural things. And I love how farming as stewardship really applies to mariculture. And I keep thinking, boy, we might need to host a panel 
sometime soon where we have you, Dune, talking about mariculture and fisheries, but then we also have farming and ranching on the land, and we really bring the ocean and the land people together to talk about a lot of the overlapping features that, you know, what are we up against for value-added processing? What are, what are we up against for market development? How can we all work together to create a more resilient, regenerative food system that re, that always is mindful that we live in a in an ecosystem that involves oceans, rivers, groundwater, surface water, forests, prairie lands, plains, deserts, everything. Um, it's all interconnected. So I, I, you just inspired me about um, another another project that we're going to take on here on the podcast and and host a panel. I think that this could be really enlightening on so many levels to so many people who are interested in this space. So yeah, you've given me hope you know, today of, on many levels. Thank wonderful. you. Well, you know, one other thing that I'd like to share before we, we go from this call is that kelp and mariculture farms have the opportunity to be the new water keepers for the ocean. Yeah. And what's going to become really important are those magic buoys, mm-hmm. which are the, smart buoys, the data buoys. Mm -hmm. And if we're really going to combat climate change, then those data buoys are critical. And so we uh, are forming our own magic buoy company too, because we want to make sure that we control that data. And if we're going to sell that data, then the native people can decide to do that. Mm -hmm. Because what we're wanting them to do is to be, those active stewards and guardians mm-hmm. of the ocean and the resources. And it's, it's not just about making money or feeling right. good, you know, at the end of the day, it's actually about doing good yep. and, 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 you know, playing an active role in, in the restoration of our planet, because what we're doing is just one of a thousand global solutions mm-hmm. that needs to not only be funded, but implemented now. Yeah. If we're serious about yeah, today is the day our planet restore. Right. Yeah. Time is not on our side. And that's something that we have to be very clear and very frank about right now is that this all needs to happen today. Um, and like you said, we can't get stuck in these really long term quagmires of, oh, let's study it for a decade and then see what we think. We, we don't have a decade to just sit and wait um, for a lot of these things to take, um, to, take, to take off and to take life. And when you think about kelp and the power that it holds from a you know, photosynthetic per- potential, it is, it is absolutely mind-boggling, really. I'm sure when you guys sit down and do the math, the photosynthetic potential of kelp farming and the impact it could make on carbon sequestration and acidification of the oceans. And that was something that I'm really personally interested in is this acidification and the role that mariculture could play in combating a lot of these imbalances in our oceans is, is absolutely staggering. It's really fascinating. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you're working in the space, Doom, because you're a doer. I, as long as I've known you, you're one of those peop- few people that I know that'll go, what if we could do... Da, 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 to make an impact and you actually go do it. <laughs> you act, you're a rainmaker. It's amazing. So um, thank you for telling us and getting me caught up on all of your projects. I've been trying to keep up the best I can, but there's no substitute for an awesome conversation. I wish we were 
sitting in the same room having a cup of coffee right now together because I I miss that. Hopefully it'll happen sometime soon. But, you know, as far as closure, I know people are going to say, how do I find out more? Like, how do I follow Dune? How do I follow the Native Conservancy? And how do I find, find out more about kelp farming? Can you tell us how we should find you and how people should follow to learn or if they want to reach out to you? How do they reach out to you and contact you? Yeah, uh, definitely go into nativeconservancy.org to our website. Uh, and, you know, anybody uh, who wants to communicate with me directly can write to dune at nativeconservancy.org. <clears throat> and I get a lot of, of uh, emails and uh, people contacting me, you know, about everything that I'm doing. Uh, and, you know, I, I've always done what I do because of my mother, you know, she always said to her seven little Indians, there's nothing stronger in this world than your belief in yourself and your dreams. And my father was a a man's man and a pontificator and also a chauvinist. And he would say stuff like, well, if a man would do this or a man would do that, a man could change the world. Well, I spent my youth looking in the eyes of every single man who walked through the door and realized they couldn't change shit. And so I changed a man to a person. And as soon as I did that and applied it to what my mother said, there's nothing stronger in this world than your belief in yourself and your dreams. I knew I was that person Mm -hmm. and I knew I could change the world. Mm -hmm. And the only person that was going to stop me was me was because I decided not to do it. And so I feel that I've been really blessed. I've had some amazing mentors and amazing friends like you in my life that keep me thinking and keep me sharp. And, 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 you know, and I feel like, uh, you know, I can be creative and, and we can do these things together because, you know, at the end of the day, we are so fortunate that we're on this planet at the same time in history that the planet needs us to be wiser and smarter and do more courageous things uh, if we're going to survive as a human race. And so Mm -hmm. I'm in. Yeah. Let's do this. Me too. (laughs) On that note, I'm in as well. And I'm so happy to be able to work with you, Dune, and keep up the fantastic work. And thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us. Thank you, my dear. And you're welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.